Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just the light in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight, won't steer you wrong. Johnny Appleseed himself. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode, guys. As many of you would say, it is now sweet November. Now, as I would typically like to say, it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> uh, I say that jokingly, but in all reality, my favorite month the entire year is the month of October. I can't wait for October to get here. Once it's here, I feel it is the fastest month each and every single year. I cannot believe how quick this month went. I mean, recapping the things that happened for me with my New Jersey hunt and killing that, you know, killing that bear and that buck and, you know, experiencing a new place, a new habitat type and a a game animal that I've never seen in such frequency. It was just incredible. And uh, it flew by. I had some some good archery hunts. I didn't get out a ton in the month of October just with uh, the, the schedule that I had. But I was able to get out and I saw some deer. I was able to shoot a doe at least. Um, you know, as I'm recording this, uh, there's, there's still a, about 10 days left in the month of October. Maybe I was able to connect on a buck. I sure hope I was. Um, but if I don't shoot my buck in October, um, of course there's plenty of season, right? There, you've got, you know, three weeks of archery season left in November. Then you get into the start of rifle season, the end of November after Thanksgiving and into late season, there's plenty of hunting opportunity, but I will say that my, the amount of deer that I've killed in those two months has the amount of buck that I've killed in those two months has typically been less um i've just been able to get on deer in october so if i don't kill one in october it makes me a touch nervous now that said um i knew that the amount of time i'd spend hunting for pennsylvania deer would be on the the lighter side this year with my schedule so I have some fallback plans and some, some fallback ideas of how I'm going to accomplish that or, or, or try to accomplish filling a tag. But the, the biggest thing that I can tell you guys, and I'm, I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to advice for anybody who's listening to this, is don't give up. I, I don't know why, but I feel like I get so married to the game, so married to the process and imagining how it should go and devising this, this plan in my mind that's supposed to go this way. And when it doesn't go that way, 
Um, I have a hard time sometimes just like going with the flow and just rolling with it and going on to plan B or plan C. I, I don't know why. It, it, it happened to me in New Jersey. Uh, I tried to cram uh, the hunt in in two days and didn't go the way I wanted it, and I got discouraged. And it, and all I all I needed to do was just keep grinding it and see what happens. At the end of the day, if I don't fill a tag, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Um, I feel like it is, but it's not. So, you know, for for all you guys, this is the the time of year. Most of, most of the people I know and talk to would prefer the, these first two weeks in November. Love it. And all I can say is grind it out. Spend some time in the stand. Uh, stick to it. I mean when you get into the chasing phase of this time of year, I feel like it's boom or bust. I feel like you can sit on stand some days and not see diddly squat. You're not in the action and you can flip a switch sometimes. And it's like, there's every deer in the neighborhood is within, you know, arms reach or, or see, you know, sighting distance of, of where you're sitting. So just be patient, stick it out and hunt hard and let it happen. And uh, I'm like I said, I'm saying that to myself as much as I am to you. This week's guest is a good friend of mine. It's uh, somebody who's, uh, I'll, I'll tease him a little bit here in the beginning. It's somebody who's got a little bit of wisdom in his hair, a little bit a little bit of gray, but he's he's got a lot of experience chasing whitetails. A lot of, uh, comes from the school of hard knocks, trying stuff himself. And uh, he's been very successful over the years, and that's Tim Himmelberger. Uh, Tim was actually my real estate agent, but uh, he's uh, you know family friend to to my dad and and uncles and stuff like that. So known him for for the, my family has known him for a long time. I got to know him better when he was my real estate agent and sold me my house. And of course we we hit it right off just because we have a passion for deer hunting. And Tim was uh, at one time uh, owned multiple properties. Uh, one in particular that he managed with his good buddy for years or and cut his teeth learning, you know, trial and error from, you know, food plots and bedding and stand access on a piece of private land. And it was before the the time with all this media, you know, all the, the hype and consultants and, you know, deer hunting information that's now available at our fingertips through social media, YouTube, stuff like that. This is before all of that. They did it themselves and, you know, made a name for themselves in the local area when they did that. And they killed some great deer. You know, at the time, they were killing... Uh, Pope and young deer, and some of them may have been three-year-old deer, but at the time, that was huge. You know, it's the equivalent to doing it now at the, the top level. I mean, they were at the top level from uh, everything that you would you, you would understand what, what they did and the, the way they shaped that herd and learn how to hunt it. We're going to talk about that process, and we're just going to talk about um, some hunting strategies that have worked over time and with that, some, some things that did not work the way they thought it would go over time. But uh, this time of year with hunting and bedding, uh, you know, a couple of the, the, the tricks that he likes to do if it works in an area is he really likes to talk about how you can use spotlighting for deer to be an information piece at that time of year and, and use that for hunting. And talks about some interesting ways of, of accessing stand locations 
by uh, observing fields and then diving in between bedding areas up close to some bedding areas this time of year. So it's a great conversation. There's a there's a, a lot to unpack in this one, and I hope you guys enjoy that one. Real quick before we do, I want to give a shout out to our partners. That's going to be Radix Hunting, guys. The trail camera game in my opinion uh, there's a lot of great companies out there i'm I'm not going to downplay any trail cameras out there however i will say in my mind it is hard to beat radix cameras i think the timing response to motion i think the image quality uh the video quality the sound everything goes with that the you know they're affordable And I've just been blown away by the cell cameras. The simplicity of using them. I love the Scout Tech app. I think it's so simple. Uh, I've just blown away by Radix cameras. I I truly am. With Radix Hunting, they've also got stick and pick camera accessories. You know, your ground mounts or your tree mounts for your cameras. Get them set up at just the right spot. I've got multiple of those out, and those are pretty handy. Especially when you're talking about getting into weird fence rows or places where you just don't have the the tree that you want for a strap and also their their tree stands running some hang on stands this year they're quiet they're secure they're comfortable check out radix hunting and also huntworth huntworth is the makers of heat boost technology they have some clothing that in my opinion for the the price hard to beat there's a lot again a lot of great clothing companies out there but Huntworth is a Pennsylvania-based company. They have uh, the Disruption Digital Camo Pattern, which in my mind, you lose yourself when you're in the woods with that. I think it's a great camo pattern. But feeling really comfortable wearing that. I've been wearing the Durham pants in the early part of the season. and As it starts getting colder, I've been wearing my Elkins midweight stuff with a windbreaker. I can wear a base layer and the Elkins and pretty much be set almost all day long when you're talking about these mid-season temperatures. As we start to get into the colder time of the year, I'll probably beef up that layer. Maybe I'll put on an insulation layer, like uh, maybe the Sheldon hoodie or something, and I might get into some heavier weight stuff. And uh, the heat boost is something that's kind of unique to them. Check out check out Huntworth gear. Uh, with that, let's get to this week's episode. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen because I've, I've heard accounts of them coming across Erie and... Just the other year, there was, I say just years, goodness, this is probably longer than 10 years ago. Somebody had one for a pet and let it loose. Let it go. People saw it. So then right away, well, there's cougars in Pennsylvania. And, like, I I just feel like if there really were any substantial amount, like, think about how many trail cameras are out there. I mean, I alone have 20-some out this year. Well, there's there's people that have 100 out, one person. That's what I always tell people when they say, you know, there's really a Bigfoot. And I'm there like, yeah, is that what yeah. you think? I yeah, said, it's the Bigfoot you're putting in your mouth right now. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. I said they make a lot of money on TV, kind of convince you, I said, because all these people see them, but then when they get the hair off the branches, it's a bear. Yeah. It's yeah. usually a bear. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But, well, we didn't come to talk about Bigfoot. We came to talk about <laughs> the, the other the other uh, elephant monkey in the room this time of year, which is whitetails. And um, I'm sitting here with uh, with my buddy Tim Himmelberger. Um, the only guy I know that will sell you a property with Boone and Crockett whitetails <laughs> on it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Now, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, so 
and I have to preface that that because um, I got to know you because you were you were my real estate agent, but you know my you knew my family a very long time. And that's kind of how we got connected and stuff. But yeah, you uh, you sold me that my house and uh, or, or you found my house for me. We we got it and stuff. And I think it was what two years later is when I killed that big one. Two years later, and uh, I never in my I mean. It doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, I never would have expected it. Yeah, but when you showed me the picture of that the year before, yeah, that was a hundred and fifty-inch buck then. Yeah, he was. So it only had one way to go. <laughs> right, and looking back on it, like when I got the the tooth on that, I, I sent the tooth in, assuming that's all accurate. When I killed him, he was a four-year-old. They said. So looking back at the pictures, I can see that he was a three-year-old, but he was a big three-year-old. He was well. He just had the genetics too. He, you know, he had ten points. He had, mm-hmm. he had, uh, he had it all. Yeah, he was a he was a dandy. He had but, the beam length too. Yeah, yeah. I think I was even talking to you sometime that week. Talked to me that day. You shot. Was it the, that? I knew it was right <laughs> around that time because we were talking about because right that same week was when uh, when the other fella uh, Ben he killed that buck. I think it grossed in the one ninety low one nineties. Something like that. I actually tried to get him on the podcast, but he uh, he didn't want to. But, yeah, we were talking about that deer, and I said, oh, man, I really think I've got a chance to kill this deer tonight. And I told you the whole story of what happened. And then I think mm-hmm. I, I think that night I texted you with a picture of him and yeah. said, he's dead. <laughs> you did. You said, you said, if he comes to the water hole tonight again, he's dead. <laughs> uh, I was, it was one of the few times in my life I called my shot, and I was right. Well, that's a good one to be to call your shot on, I will tell you. Yeah, it was. That was. Uh, I, I was. I was telling my uncle. I said, there are very few times in hunting where I've pictured something in my mind, envisioned it to go a certain way, and it actually happened that way. <laughs> so many times it doesn't. Yeah, the deer are so much better today. Um, for those who don't know, I. I did the meat business for 30 years. Yeah, tell me about yourself a little bit because I didn't do a very good well, job introducing yourself. No, that's okay, yourself. but I, I was in the butcher business for 30 years, and um, uh, I scun a lot of deer, mm-hmm. and I saw a lot of deer uh, from different areas, different counties. Uh, and uh, when you showed me that picture, even the year be- prior, uh, we managed uh, a property over near the Christmas Village. Everybody kind of knows where the Christmas Village is near Burnville. And my buddy and I had uh, uh, about 80 acres in there, and uh, and we produced, you know, bucks up to 150 inches, 151 actually. Mm-hmm. And um, when I saw that buck, I thought that's a special deer. Uh, so, you know, I thought, you know, I am the real estate agent that sells booners. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have to be a lot of acres either. It does not. Uh, sometimes you just got to get a little bit lucky. But you, uh, you've you hunted your whole life. We've I've talked about hunting with you a long time. But did you, like when you, you talked about the property there you, you just got, which that's a story that I think you ought to brief on because that's an interesting story, how you came across that property and ended up acquiring it with your buddy. But were you in pursuit of the next age class of deer prior to getting that property or was that like where were you at in in your hunting when you started to go from permission public land 
do-it-yourself to owning a piece and trying to figure out the management side of things? Well, the first piece we bought, we bought um, a 28-acre tract over along the Robbins on your Bremel Road that used to be an old peach orchard. And that was the first piece uh, Mike and I bought. And um, we learned pretty quickly that 27 acres isn't that big when you have two guys that love to hunt. Mm. And uh, But we made it work, but we learned... We learned a lot just trying to manage it, you know, manage our time there, manage wind directions and all that. And we kept, we started talking. We did a lot of deer spotting that time because there was no deer cameras. Right. So that's how we, we kept um, an eye on where the bucks, the buck movement at night. Um, so doing all that, we, we decided that if we had a bigger tract of land, uh, we could actually we could actually, by trial and error, we think we should grow. We could grow some really big deer because the ingredients were there. Right. The minerals were there. We knew we wanted to get down along that Topahawken Creek where the minerals were better, and uh, the soils were better. Uh, you had a lot of creek loam soil. Yeah. And uh, and if the Indians, there was an old Indian reservation there. We found arrowheads, axe heads, pottery. Uh, Lenape tribe was there. And uh, we thought, well, if the, it was good for the Indians, it's it's good for everything. Yeah. And so that we went after that piece of property when it popped up, and with a little help from my dad, buying the one side, we were able to acquire that land and started managing. And um, we learned a lot of lessons. Well, you, you do, because <laughs> I said this, um, I think I said this on a podcast not too long ago. I was talking about... Um, People who are into private land manipulation and hunting versus people who are just really good hunters and, you know, can kill big deer, whether it's public land permission, whatever that is. And I made a statement, and I don't, I'd be curious if you would agree with this, but I said, you know, if you put, you know, some of the best bow hunters in the country um, on a property, you know, a piece of private land, let's, let's just, let's just, uh, you know, Pick your fancy, let's just say an 80-acre piece, and it's well-managed and everything else. And then you take one of the best bow hunters in the country that doesn't do anything management-wise. I believe that individual could kill the best deer on that property a high percentage of the time because they're a good hunter, right? But I agree with that. But would they do it over the course of 10 years because they're good hunters, but would they have the ability to maintain that quality of a hunt on a property. And that's where I say, and I hate throwing names around, but like some of the names in the industry that you get thrown around, like from a management side, you think about like Jeff Sturgis is a big one right now. Um, you know, Whitetail Partners, um, you know, even John Teeter on on our show. Um, guys that are fantastic habitat managers, and they're also very good hunters too. And I think somebody like that has the same quality of or same level of hunting skill but i think their ability to do it on a more consistent basis in a border i I think they've got a better chance just because the lessons learned in private land manipulation are are difficult in my opinion i don't know what your thoughts are or you know what if you if if i'm making sense of what i'm trying to say no you are i mean um some guys just you got to understand the deer right um that takes some time. Um, 
we we thought we knew a lot about deer and then once you once you're managing a property you find out that there's a lot more movement than you thought mm. um and you can manipulate the food source you know we had we had tillable ground along with wooded land with swamp we just we had a really really quality yeah, diversity we really had a quality place yeah and uh, i think the biggest thing for uh, you know the, the hardest thing when we first started was to pass deer to pass to pass 16 inch spread eight pointers yeah you know to pass good two-year-old bucks right because when you have good food uh, and you create more cover for them, uh, they don't go far, not until the rut. Um, so the big, the hardest thing was to spend a lot of money, put a lot of effort in it, and then have to stay the heck out of it. That's the hardest thing to do because people that I know that buy tracks of land, they like to ride four-wheelers. Deer don't like anything that's faster or quicker than they are. Um, so that startles them. You'll you'll keep your does. You'll keep your younger bucks. Older bucks you may keep, but they're coming down at night. You're gonna you're gonna make them nocturnal pretty quickly, um, or put them in midday movement. You know, lunchtime movement. Uh, but we had uh, that was the, the biggest lessons were that we the the other thing is when we planted. We uh, we learned pretty quickly that some of the cheapest seed was the best seed mm. uh, for bulk food, uh, which was ryegrass. Yeah, ryegrass was we planted ryegrass or cereal cereal rye. Cereal rye. Okay. We plant or we just planted straight rye. Okay. Um, because if you watch, if deer are just a little pressured, which we didn't think we had ours pressured, but if you're if you're there, you're pressuring them. Exactly. And um, so those deer would come out to eat. Even if the bigger bucks would come out in daylight, we would watch them eat. And they just pull everything out by the roots and swallow everything whole, of course, because they're ungulates. And, and so th- it didn't take them long to fill their bellies. And they'd disappear back into the woods. You know, they were only out 20 minutes. And they would, they would, they would find their way back into cover. So... Watching these deer all the time, we, we, we decided the most important thing, other than having something to, the food source, and we had the creek there, so we didn't have a water issue, uh, was cover. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time creating cover, hinge cutting, you know, and hinge cutting anything that didn't bear nuts or fruit. All right. You know, that's what we did in February. So we did a lot of that. And then the, what you'll find is if, if you have a piece of ground and you start managing, you're, you, you're going to find that um, your doe population will increase really fast. Well, especially in the area that you're talking, because that's an area now with a lot of nooks and crannies of ditches and hollows and woodlands amongst very prime farm ground. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. a, it, it, is, it doesn't take long. No, it doesn't take long. And then you have to take the time and put the effort in to either bring people in. We started bringing in. We didn't do it right away. Uh, we were pretty proud of what we did. Mm. And uh, so we kind of protected it. And then we realized um, we couldn't keep up with the does. Uh, we were getting out of balance pretty pretty quickly after about four or five years. Yeah. So we start bringing in some people, some friends, and, and we started putting a hole in the does. And... Uh, 
So we did we did do pretty good there. We didn't do anything one to two or two to one or anything like that, but we were like five doughs for a buck. Well, uh, that's an interesting topic of conversation because I agree we need to shoot dough or, or manage, manage it in a way that things don't become completely out of bounds. But the trickiest part I've always thought of is how do you do that when you're confined to such small borders and your goal is to try to shoot mature deer? Because it's hard to not put pressure on your property when you're killing deer. It's true, but you have well. In our case, we, you know, we you have to know who your neighbors are and and how they hunt. Mm. Uh, most of those people hunt. Uh, they're shooters. They are shooters. Uh, they they were not uh, uh, managing. They were you know if it had antlers, they'd shoot it. And yeah. If they had if it was a doe, they'd shoot it. So they were good at killing does. And they were good at killing a uh, year and a half old bucks. And so we had a couple meetings with them. And over the years, in fact, you know, it's the first first eight years or so were pretty slow uh, trying to get them to help. And, uh, and finally, they did put some plots in and got some success. And the, and the light bulb went on. Mm. And so... Why that, is it that food plots are always the first go-to for so many cases because in a lot of cases like food plots aren't always in my opinion they're not always the biggest hole in the bucket for a property but yet they are instant gratification and they 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 do have a lot of value i mean i love food plots well in these small areas and this is a small area these small woodlots and things like that you know yes we're surrounded by prime farmland we're a lot of farmland i should say not so much some some's not so prime right but it's it's planted and you know, today the efficiency of taking up all the crops is pretty good. So those who have something green in the winter time, uh, those does don't forget that. Right. And uh, I know everybody thinks does don't have a brain and this and that, but that's just not true. Um, they will. They stay near the food source. Sure. And um, so, you know, we might change what we plant, but the it's still going to get planted in the same areas because mm-hmm. there's only so much open area we had. So, yeah. Right. I mean, and we could probably go down a management rabbit hole all night long, and I love the management, but what I, what, what I find interesting and what I really wanted to pick your brain on is just the process of you learning to hunt some of the upper end age class deer because that's that's not an easy feat some people pick it up quicker than others and some people never pick it up it's not easy to do when you start talking about getting the the top age bracket in your neighborhood that is in my opinion and some people will disagree but in my opinion that's a different animal oh it's it's definitely a different animal uh especially it it all depends how much pressure is there right um they don't tolerate a lot of pressure. Well, and you were talking about managing pressure between you and your buddy Mike. So, like, what was – I mean, think when you think back, was there anything that really stands out that says, like, this was an aha moment from a pressure standpoint that we were doing wrong, and this is how we adjusted it moving forward? Wind direction. Okay. Wind direction was the most crucial thing for us. We used to pl- – you know, you have your own ground. At one time we had 22 stands out. If we were nailed one time in a doe, from a doe, an older doe, mm. um, that stand was off limits. It was, it was, 
you know, it was the only thing I thought was going to see there was a tree stand hanging there because right. nobody was going to be in it anymore. Um, we learned that pretty quickly, and a lot of times that was because we insisted on hunting with a wrong wind. Um, I mean, today, you you know how you have ozonics and all that stuff, and you can it helps get uh, it, it helps you in a bad situation if the wind shifts. Right. Uh, you, years ago, what we used to do is we had so many stands because of the wind shifted, we would get out. And we would move, uh, and a lot of times we were successful doing that. Mm -hmm. um, we moved, just moved to where the wind was correct, and if it wasn't, we'd leave. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their one-two planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Well, and Talk about wind correct too, because what what is your philosophy on wind being correct? Because I've heard a number of hunters, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I've heard a number of hunters talking lately that if you look at the wind and it's 100% in your favor and it's 100% not in the deer's favor, that that's not actually a good wind for hunting a mature buck. Meaning, like if I need, you know, if my access into a spot, let's just think in in terms like if I'm if I'm coming from the east, if I'm walking west into a stand, and I'm hunting, uh, let's just say I'm hunting a north and south movement, and I've got a west wind perpendicular there, that that's completely wrong for those deer to um, to be able to be safe because they, they can't tell where I am or, or what pressure is based on their nose. So, therefore, that's not a good wind. Like, like the, the, some of the people I've talked to lately are talking about hunting just off winds. And I understand where they're coming from because it's like you could get busted at any moment and the deer thinks he has you, but um, in, in all reality, you're just off and it, it, it makes it perfect. And I, I think where I'm coming from for that is – Maybe I'm not hunting places that are as pressured as some of the other places where this is experienced because I just haven't had that experience. But, um, well, I was never as c concerned about the bucks as I was the old does. Okay, the old does can ruin your day. Um, so that was my whole goal was to beat the old does, and I was I was pretty good at outfoxing the even the bigger bucks. You yeah. know, the, the older bucks. Once we started concentrating and uh, it took about I'd say four years number one till we had bigger bucks right we had three-year-olds you know three-year-olds was a big deal um, getting a deer to three years old at that time because we were like one of the first ones that ever did this right in around here and so when we did it you know it was it was um, it was it was a learning curve but I always I always was more concerned about the older does if I had the wind. Because if, if does think she smells you, she will find you. Right. She'll track you down. She don't care if, you know, she, she doesn't understand that you're going to, she's worried. It's, a lot of times she has young ones, so she's, she's not only, she's teaching and she's also protecting. 
It's like it's they're like confir- they like to confirm a lot of time with two senses. Like if they smell you, if they or if they see something that's wrong, they'll circle down when to smell they, you. They will, and and they'll ruin your day <laughs> because. Yeah. Um, so the bucks, once they're on their feet, if, you know the hard part is to get them old buggers on their feet. If they're four, you know, four years old or so, um, is to get them on their feet before November. Um, during daylight hours. That was the, you know, once they're on their feet, um, I've learned that uh, they they travel a lot of time around lunchtime when, when they know the hunter has left. Hmm. Um, after a rain, when it's raining, I always tell people if it's supposed to stop, get out in the tree when it starts to break because as soon as you get that breeze, um, that breeze, it's, it always starts getting breezy in the woods when it's going to stop raining. Mm-hmm. If you're in there, that's a great time to kill one of them older bucks. They come in at rattling antlers. They're, they're a little friskier. Uh, I don't know why that is. It just mm-hmm. no, I can just say from experience that it's happened quite a few times in my hunting experience. Yeah. It looks um, like your headphones are popping up. You, you, this, this, these extend out. Oh. Put it over top of your head, then it won't fall. There you go. So, I would say wind direction. I was always more concerned. I'm not saying I wasn't concerned about older bucks. They're not that they're not smart, or they are. Mm-hmm. But they're lazy, you know. And they they uh, they don't like to get up. They don't have to, especially if you're close to the food source. Like if you're hunting around here. Mm-hmm. If you're hunting in the big woods upstate, or it's a different story. They got to sure, travel sure. a little farther. But but a lot of times if there's if it's full of acorns and stuff they're not coming out anyway. So when you think back over the years to some of the buck that you guys have killed on that property, um, were you focusing on killing them closer to food, in bedding, somewhere in between? What did that look like for the majority of the time, or was that all over the place? For me, it was almost always between bedding areas around lunchtime. Okay. I would. Uh, I learned that if you cannot beat those deer in, let's say you're hunting an area where there's a field, you got to get into the field, or you got to get around the field to get into the area, into the wood lo- into the wooded areas, uh, and you can't beat those deer in, uh, or you're going to disturb them going in, you're going to rile them up. Um, then I've learned through the years of in the morning they'll leave a frost trail where they went in. So these are all things that, that these are all skills that you learn. Uh, I was never taught or self-taught. Yeah. So you, you take notice of everything. You know, you don't listen to what anybody else has to say. You're learning from what you see. And so what I learned to do is to back trail those deer in. And uh, a lot of times when they go in, if they don't smell anything, they're not checking their back trail. Hardly ever did I have that problem. Mm. And it's so easy if a bigger buck went in that morning with the, you know, following a couple does or whatever, and they they go into that area. If a lot of times, of course, we had stands everywhere, like I said. So, but it, the easiest, the some of the best luck I had was trailing those does in, or those, or if it was a buck in the field that night spotting, we saw this big buck and stuff. I mean, today it's cameras, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so easy to call that buck back mm. with rattling antlers or a good grunt call or both. 
or a, or a, or a, if you have a fawn bleat call where you use that almost like a distress and then go right into a buck grunt have one hand one call in each hand and he'll he'll say why how did i miss that you know or who's in my i just went through there so if it, we learn i've learned pretty quickly that uh, is if deer go into an area they will drop their guard to come back to it because they just went through there so, like, would you find yourself in a lot of cases glassing fields in the morning as it was breaking daylight before you were going in? Absolutely. So you wouldn't even actually have an idea of what stand you would be going in that morning? That's correct. Okay. Um, if we spotted, and when I say spot, we don't spot and sit on them. We just, we want to see yeah. if the one of the big guys is out in the field. Right. And uh, whereabouts they are. Because if you see them in the field, most of the time they're still there. Um, you know, they're they're not leaving that field when you leave. If you drive by or something, a lot of, they'll go back in. But a lot of times they'll lay right along the edge. Um, so, yeah. So that, yeah, that, like the you know the night before something like that when you're when you're talking about using spotting, um, like to me that's the biggest thing. I mean, I talked about this with you with the one that I killed the other year. Like it was that that window that time frame where he would always show up in this specific area. And I think that's, to me, that's one thing that's important to me. And like, when I think about the deer I'm going after this year, uh, two of the properties that I'm hunting, I am looking at windows where I have, I've, you know, it's again, back to trail camera stuff where I've got a consistent time frame between, you know, a, a five day period where this deer is showing up in daylight. He did it, you know, the one did it once last year. So I've only got one set of data and it might not happen this year. Uh, but another one, I've actually got it for three years, and I know we made it through because I had pictures. So, like that that window time frame to me is is important in utilizing that. So you take that into spotting. So you, you spot. Let's just say you're spotting your neighborhood uh, five five out of seven nights a week or something like they that. They did that. And <laughs> when you when you get that, and a deer that of the caliber that you want finally is in your neighborhood, game on. Game on, yeah. We we kind of stayed out of it. You asked about, I kind of skipped over that. Um, if we didn't see what we were looking for, but we knew he was in the area, but we didn't really know where, Yeah. Um, we would not hunt it. Right. We would stay out of it. We would. We had two trees, actually, we were near the road, um, and that we would use as surveillance. We would just sit there because they were like 30 feet high and we would sit there to watch because we could see into the woods because especially when you have like when the chestnut oaks like now uh when the chestnut oaks are are are, are really dropping uh, that's their preference sure that's that's their preference you you, you can't you're not going to draw them out with anything else you know food plots and stuff they're coming that's where they're going um uh, the you see you asked what we learned the biggest thing we learned was you have to leave. So that was that was our first lesson, um, having this land and managing it. We had ways to get in to these deer, but you had to leave. Mm. And when you leave in the evening, um, for some reason, when you go into the area, you're sneaking into the area, you're squirreling your way in. When I say squirreling, I mean, you know, you know, like 
you know, use your foot to shuffle the leaves because you can walk right up on deer like that. They won't even Absolutely. turn. Their, they won't even turn their ear. Now, don't you know that that cadence of of a human that's distinguishable. But if it's not distinguishable, like I've already done that with a turkey call, and you're scratching in the leaves, and I've walked right up on deer. Yeah. So, what what I've noticed from hunters is, I a lot of times I wouldn't hear the neighbors come in, but I'd hear them leave. Yeah. Because. There was this, I don't know what it is, but when- Get the heck out. It was, yeah, it was dark and we're going to leave and and there's deer probably standing 20 yards from them and they don't see them. Yep. But they see them. That that stands dead, in my opinion. Maybe not to them. And I'm not saying you can't shoot a deer out of that stand. But for us, that was a dead stand. If we killed that, if we got caught leaving. Um, because we tried to, when you have land, um, that's one thing that you can do is you can give yourself a way out. You can create cover. You can create, you know, a cover line to get you out of there. For us, for me, a lot of times it was get me in the creek. Then I could just... Yeah, you've talked a lot about water access. Yep. I would go in, I would always go in through the creek if I could. Especially if I hunted what we called the swamp land, which was the lower end. Yes, I would, I, that's how I accessed the stands. I would go in I would go down through the middle of the creek. So hip boots were probably needed? Hip boots, yep. Yeah. Would you just take them off or would you just hunt them in them? No, no, I, I would take them off. Um, I would I would take, I had my boots hung around my neck. Yeah. And uh, I would I would take them off when I got to my stand. My stand wasn't far off the creek. Big bucks like that creek. <laughs> well, I, it, yeah. you think about, like I just think about our general area where we live, and you think about the history. Let's just take the last twenty years, and you think about where some of the biggest bucks are that you know that get killed. Uh, there's a lot of them that get killed near large bodies of, of water. water. Yep. Yeah, and is that because that has? I, I think there's a lot of things. Number one, it creates a new edge. It's a different soil type, um, but I think it funnels a lot of of game movement. There's a, yeah, you just the point, moist the moist air they could smell. I mean, they can get you. Yeah. I mean, they. I've, I've seen bucks laying along the creek. They put their nose right into that in that current direction, and they just they're pretty comfortable. But I'll never forget duck hunting. One time we were going down a going down a creek, and we're in a in a flat bottom boat. And we came around this oxbow, and exactly what you saw the first time I ever saw that a really nice buck laying on the oxbow edge of the creek. That was like an aha moment. Yeah. Yeah, they'll back up. The the other thing we learned too is the bigger bucks, of course, they have experience. They learn they learn to give themselves options. Um, they will lay where they can escape two, three different directions. A lot of times, a high point. Um, we we noticed that the bigger bucks would always lay right off the high point of of a ridge or anything like that or a saddle. Mm-hmm. You know, saddles. I love saddles. And when I we used to hunt New York and stuff like that, and we used top maps. The first thing we do is find all the saddles, and that's where we'd focus on. And we had a lot of success. Um, so, yeah, yeah, saddles are something that I haven't spent much time in. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who was saying that he he feels as though now with the advancement of technology and the ability to every for everybody to get that map on their phone or whatever it's easy to pick up where every single saddle is and now there's a tree stand at every single saddle he said i don't even focus on them anymore because i feel like they're just hunter paradises well they are they're, maybe they work too that's why right um they, they create pinch points and travel routes and crisscross uh when they're 
when they're when they're put their nose in the wind and trying to find a receptive doe. I mean, that is where you want to be. Not not early in the season. I don't. I never had a lot of luck in saddles in early in the season, until until uh, last week of October. Mm-hmm. You know. Did you have a a time frame? hunting that property or maybe just hunting in general now when you stand back like that you prefer hunting that like you feel like is where you're most comfortable in getting on a mature deer between two bedding areas uh let me rephrase i was thinking more (laughs) like along the lines of timing of the year november 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 is november you got a better chance of of shooting a a better buck sometimes though if you have a piece of land and you let's say you have You've had two, three pretty good bucks there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll have five that winter together, and and and, and you know, in spring they're in spring and they're velvet together. But it doesn't last too long if the pecking order is challenged. Um, but some are just tolerated. Some some deer are just not aggressive, and we always thought we always said we you want the non-aggressive buck because those are the ones that seem to get to make it. Yeah, the docile ones. Yep, it's the, the docile ones with the bigger antlers yeah, too. <laughs> it's, that's right. They, it's, those are the ones that make it because the aggressive bucks are going to get shot because yeah. there's just the odds aren't with them to to wander through the woods chasing does all over the place and getting get you know clear all these hunters because you know let's face it the hunter the hunters have more uh, information today and more t- with technology the they don't have to uh, they don't have to uh, uh, enhance their skills uh with cameras they have, they have instant proof absolutely it keeps them in a stand um where we had to you know we would measure foot when we would see the footprints along the in the mud or along the fields or in the, along the creek bottoms anything like that we, you know i knew from what i did for years in the meat business what a bigger deer looked like and and uh also you know bigger bucks as they get usually the uh, bigger bucks are longer uh they're longer because they're older but they're they're just that length will keep that that back foot from going into the front foot step when they're a year and a half old they'll that step that back foot will hit that front step because they're shorter yeah but as they get older and get heavier that front foot will start to splay out, so you'll get like almost like a duck foot in the front, where they'll they'll you know the the weight will push them they'll mm-hmm. and and push it out, and and the length of the stride the length of the stride was everything. If we could, if you find one where the back foot was four inches short earlier in the season, there was a you you had a shooter, mm-hmm. you know, even if you never saw it, because a lot of times we never saw the deer we were going to shoot. Yeah, different world when you're not using trail cameras. It's hard for it's it's hard for me to think about that, Tim. In all reality, because I'm I'm almost 30 years old and I cannot remember not using some type of camera since I started hunting. Yeah, and that's uh, you know people used to say to me, "You spot a lot." Well, yeah, because it's basically that was our cameras. Yeah, you know we would go out and we would inventory that way, um, and believe it or not, I mean. You know, once the rut starts, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon to see a buck in your hunting area, wherever you're hunting, and that evening go spotting it for a mile and a half, two miles away, you'll see the same buck mm-hmm. cover a lot of ground in, a, in an afternoon. Uh, it's just, we've seen that, we've seen that quite a few times where we would see, we had a piece of ground over along the Robbins on your Bremel Road, 
uh, it was, like I said, it was our first piece. It was around 30 acres. But we saw a buck over there. We call him Socks. And and I came home that night, and right in front of my mailbox, uh, a mile and a half, two miles away, almost two miles away, uh, stand Socks, hmm. you know, at 10 o'clock at night. So, covered some ground. Yeah, when you think about uh, when they talk about the average home range of a, of a mature deer being three square miles, and you put down on paper what three square miles is, it's kind of staggering. It's a, it's a lot of ground they can cover. Normally, they, I mean, once the rut's over, the bigger bucks, they'll go back to where they, if they had a food source, or like a managed area like we, we were doing, um, they'll come back if they've survived the hunting season, and they don't leave. They don't go far either after that. Well, security. If 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 they don't have to go far for food and cover and security, why would they? You were you were talking earlier though about places that you like to hone in on. You you talked about uh, between bedding areas and like that's important because first of all, that's where you've had a lot of success. But hunting bedding areas to me is tricky. Like it, it's, it's a gamble every time you do it. Yeah. So like in your mind, like. When is the time to roll the dice and say that the gamble is worth the risk? Well, because every time you do it on a small piece, you're running the risk of chasing deer off and creating a nighttime parcel. Well, not so much. If you know, if you if you if you understand the, you know, you you can be sitting close to that area where you actually want to go. You hang that stand there. We always had a stand there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was a stand that was hardly hunted. Sometimes you see these little side trails that are not used as much, you know. A lot of times those little side trails are buck travel corridors from bedding area to bedding area. And those are the ones that you focus on. The other thing is you're you're not in the doe. You're not the does aren't going to nail you because if you if you know how to get into that area, if you know the area, learn the area, you can get into that area without the does detecting you. If the bucks nail you, you're done. You know, but most of the time they don't. You know, the bucks are the if you if you I always say squirrel your way in because I would I would go in after, um, you know it would get light. Mm-hmm. I would I would wait another hour. Some I mean it's not that I couldn't go in the dark. I might have been sitting there over in the in the car an hour and a half before it got light, but I knew I couldn't. It wasn't just a good, it was a bad situation. So and there was I, no way you could come in from the backside in a lot of those cases? Not at that time. Now, I, I could later. Okay. I made it that way. But, um, yeah. But I a lot of times I, I worked my way in. So, like, when you talk about doing that, like, I think about working your way into a bedding area from a food source like you're talking about well, doing. Well, between them. Between them? It's between the bedding areas. Okay. I never, you know, if you go into the bedding or you're gonna, you're gonna get right. nailed. So you're you're talking about in in this situation, you know where dominant bedding is in these situations, and you're coming from food. I mean, you talked about back trailing. I'm assuming we're talking about the same thing yet, but you just know how the terrain lays and how the bedding lays in a way that you can walk in between there while it's daylight and not get busted. Yes. Yeah. You can do that as long as you do, if if you. I did a lot of practicing squirreling, squirrel walking is what I used to call it, squirreling my way in. Um, but it works. It works great. Uh, I walked up on I walked up on smaller bucks. They didn't even turn their head at me. Right. And I'm talking within 10 yards. Uh, and I walked away from them. You know what's amazing? I've hunted bedding areas or close to bedding areas. And when a deer is in its bed 
and, and they're in their comfort zone, I am amazed at how much they let go. It. Yep. I shot a coyote right under a tree when I had a deer 40 yards from me. It never, ever left its bed. It picked its ears up. The thing died and was yipping right in front of me. And it never, like, it never left its bed. And I believe it or not, the wind was good, and I left this tree at, I'm going to say I left it at 10 o'clock. I had, I had an obligation. I had to leave. But I thought, when I'm done with this, I'm coming right back to this tree because I had heard a buck chasing a doe. I knew he bedded on this ridge. I thought, I'm going to at least give this a shot. I thought, I'm going to sneak back in there. And I snuck back into that tree, and as sure as anything, as as soon as I turned in my stand and turned, that deer was still laying in that exact same place. But, like, the things that I saw that morning of the noises, the other game moving, my noises, I made a dumb noise with shooting a coyote, and... It didn't bother them, and that blows me away. Yeah, they you can get away with a lot midday. Uh, it's just amazing. Um, uh, like I said, the best thing that I've ever found was just squirreling your way through the woods. It, it, it just, just shuffle your feet just like a squirrel runs. It's amazing how you can just work your way in, and you can get into where you need to be and and it, sometimes I would climb up the tree, get in the stand, I'd turn around, and I could see deer land, you know, right. once I got elevated. And I was so close to them, and they never, that never alarmed them because that was a sound they're normally going to hear. And in fact, for a lot of us hunters, squirrels can be a pain in the butt. because, yeah. <laughs> Well, they pretty much ignore it because it's a pain in the butt for them, too. They have to hear them, and as long as it sounds pretty close to that squirrel or you know, you gotta be, you gotta practice at it and stuff, but it really works. Oh, well, you gotta take your time. Yep, you gotta go slow. You gotta I mean, I, I've I've done that same thing with turkeys. Like I'll, I've I, there's a couple places upstate that I've hunted that I'll, I'll let's say I'm gonna go in on this bench. I can think about it. The other year when I did it, I popped a turkey call in my mouth and I was just clucking and and working my way and I was making all kinds of racket on purpose, and I got almost to where I wanted to go and then of course, I pushed it a little too far. And, it saw me when I was walking, and up up it goes. But again, I got within forty yards of of that's pretty good of of, of deer. Yeah, or, yeah, of deer. I was I was turkey calling just for for you know same concept of well, squirreling your way. I will tell you this. Um, the other another way we we used to get um, w- if we wanted to take out one of the mature does, we used to call them one of the donkey ears. Um, we would take a turkey call with us if we sat early in the season. We wanted to take one of them big does out. We would we would act like we were we were at the the uh, chestnut oaks at the feed tree, almost like. Yep, and those those deer would come. They would come to chase them away. It was funny because I've had we've had I've had turkeys flop deer already right in front of me, you yeah. know, and uh, but you could get them to come in that way. Uh, Do you ever see those little clickers? It sounds like a deer eating a nut. Yeah, that's the craziest thinking, looking a, thing ever. Yeah, it is, but it works. Okay. <laughs> I never tried it. I never it, tried. It. Well, that's just like the concept of just taking, you know, grabbing acorns in your hand or you know, picking up small rocks and stuff. And when you're in a tree, dropping them. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, I used to fill my pockets full, and I go in there and I. Yeah. Because after a while. Yeah, but we did. You know, we used to concentrate. Like when 
when we when we first started, I'm 65 years old. For everybody who wants to know why, how why I'm talking like this, <laughs> but we used to use uh, duck calls converted to to make a deer call because years ago there was no deer calls. Okay, you know, um, there was a they they came out with a couple, but actually you could you could work with a duck call and actually you know create a, a grunt call with it. And so that's what we we had made that you know we we would work on those things and we would make things. We made. Um, well, we made all kinds. <laughs> we we uh, we've been make uh, scent canisters and things like that to use because when I was working in the meat business and I was born and raised in it, yeah, I had access to all fresh urine and all that stuff. So we were using that stuff long before it was real popular yeah, too. And synthetics and all that stuff. And it works. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It used to really work well. So, yeah, we had. It's it's a lot of trial and error. That was. I mean, I, I'm old, so you have to forgive me, but, you know, the cameras and, and, uh, and the, the blinds and everything else just sometimes, for me, takes away, takes the fun out of it. Um, and I think it gives me too much information that I'm, I, I'm somebody that when you give a lot of information, it's really, really easy to talk yourself out of doing something like for instance we were just talking about land purchases and Mm -hmm. you know before we started recording this we were talking about you know what it takes in order to save some cash up and then make that first jump and stuff but like the longer you fixate and, and apply all the variables to it it's really really hard to make that jump and make that decision and you take take that in when you're talking about going into in between bedding areas or basically you're hunting bedding areas you're just hunting sure fringes of it edges oh, yeah, of it, transitions true. and stuff and like i just i second guess myself i don't have the confidence in that style of hunting to say if i do this i'm gonna put myself in a very hot high odds situation without making it an all-or-nothing ordeal. Because I feel like, let's just say, oh gosh, let's just say it's last week of October, first week of November, there's a cold front, and you got all these things working in your odds that make you think, this is where I need to be. But there's a part of me that says, there's still two weeks of season yet. And if I go into that area and I screw something up, is that going to really decimate the quality of what this bedding area's function is for on this property. And and like it it's like you said, it's high odds. It's 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 all in all all out. It it is. It I mean there's sometimes there's just no right way, no wrong way, but it, I right. shouldn't say that. There there is. There you know, I I really didn't have too much difficulty because the nice thing is when you're back in there and you're in the meat of the woods, uh if you're going to sit there most of the, you know, the whole day, that time of year, you absolutely should if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once those does start moving, that's actually that's when it's harder to kill one of them better bucks because now there's competition. There's other bucks coming in the area. They're going to start pushing these does around and chase them all over the place. Well, then it's hard to, if you have a target buck, it's really hard then to, to get that target buck. It's more easy to get that target buck. And um, at 12 o'clock noon when he's shifting bedding areas because what they'll do is in the morning they'll go in of course the buck will trail them in because a lot of times if you spot deer if you were a lot of if you spot a lot of deer you learn pretty quickly that the rut's a dead giveaway when you see a a three-year-old buck laying 
laying, not standing. Um, that's the beginning of the rut. And, I, and we, we, we used to keep notes and, and, and take a lot of data down, and we always knew that we'd say, no, you know, he's standing. You know, he's standing, he's standing, not yet. And then all of a sudden you'd see two days later when it was close, you'd see four or five does laying there, and they're laid a buck, a breeding buck. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the, shouldn't, you know, they all breed. Right. But, but uh, you know. That was an indication one was coming into heat and he wasn't leaving her. That's correct. Yeah. Hmm. And so that's that was a that was a big giveaway. The 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 twelve o'clock uh, that that eleven to one o'clock time limit when you're sitting between bedding areas is uh, is a highly productive time, but it's a tough time to be in the woods. Well, and, and give me your philosophy behind that because I've heard a lot of different philosophies and why that time frame is so good. Some people say it's like you brought up about hunting pressure, some people have said it's it's a maybe a transition in the wind, maybe it's a transition from food. There's, there's so many differences, but like, why why in your mind is that such an important time? And one thing I've learned too is like I, I have spent time hunting at that that hour. Um, I haven't found a lot of success, and I, I believe it was because I wasn't choosing the appropriate stand location in order to see what I wanted to see in that situation. So, so like, give me a little bit more of your philosophy of that midday time frame because that's something I'm weak in. Well, when we first started to figure out that midday was was uh, a time period that no one ever talked about and never, you know, I didn't, uh, all the years of being in the meat business and I hear all the stories, nobody was shooting anything between 11 and 1 o'clock. Right. But we had a big nine-pointer over there the one year and, we couldn't figure out when this deer was coming to, you know, use to check these scrapes. Uh, we sat there with morning stands. We sat there evening stands, and then we'd come back in, and that damn, that damn, was work. You know, the, the scrape was work, and it wasn't at night. And so I decided, I'm going to sit between the bedding area and the food source, which was a little different, but between his scrapes and the bedding area. And I'm sitting there thinking, why am I sitting in here at, at uh, 1230, you know, quarter one? And all of a sudden, here he comes. And he was coming. He walked in like a drunken soldier, you know. He had no cares in the world. Guard down, walked right into it. I made a scrape. I always make a scrape one side of the tree so I can get a broadside shot. You don't want him coming in nose down. You know, it's a tough shot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, the mock scrape will also, they'll check that out right away. And, you know, I harvested that deer. And then I thought, so then I I started throwing, well, well, you know, there's something to this. You know, it's a bigger deer. He's traveling, you know, between 11 and 1 o'clock, closer to 1, that one, that one was. So I thought, I can do this. I can parlay this between bedding areas because I always saw these little trails like I told you the little side trails and this is how I figured it out who's using these side trails because I never saw the does use them ever mm-hmm. you know and I'm thinking what's it, what are these trails for but I would see as November progressed these trails would start to get used but I never saw a doe on them you know and that's when the light bulb went on going these bucks are traveling from you know doe bedding area to to doe bedding area 
They'll lay with the does for a while. If they can't get any up or they're not ready, they'll get up midday. They know them does aren't going anywhere. As long as they're bedded and they're not disturbed, they're not leaving. Did you ever see any trends in how those trails oriented from bedding area to bedding area? Did they always come in from a certain way or would they go right into the heart of it? Or did you ever see any trends one way or the other that, that or not necessarily? Yeah, the better bucks would always, theirs was always higher. Okay. You know, if the doe bedding area was was in the sun on the south side, uh, a lot of times it was near a bowl or a saddle. Okay. Um, uh, uh but the bucks would be higher. The bucks would always be higher. Um, uh, that we're going to, you know, a lot of times when I would when I would set up there, I would set up that I was higher than they were, because I couldn't risk them smelling me. But I, but I will tell you, um, I never had a deer that was real alert at that time. Okay. You know, they just they just kind of dropped their guard. Uh, it was just like after a rain. You know, after a rain, same kind of behavior. Yes, yes. But now they're heading for the fields a lot of times after a rain. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they're, they're going to a staging. They usually stage the, the bottom before they go out. But they're there where they normally wouldn't be. There'd be, you know, they, 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 they'd have more cover. They just don't. Right. You know. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I always hunted above, above, where they were going to be. Um, in a lot of cases, you're probably going to, depending on what topography and stuff like, but I would think prevailing thermal would have to be an advantage in that case. Cause I always think about that too. Like I'm thinking about this one property that I'm hunting this year. Um, it's just a matter of, can I get above them without messing it up in the first place? Once I do the majority of the day, I'm set. Um, uh, it's kind of unique because, uh, there's a north-facing slope, and the thermal pulls down a very, very long time. Sometimes I, I sat there once last year, and it actually, on a cold front, it pulled down all day. Even though it was a sunny, bright, sunny day, it's just the, the thermal pulled down the hill the whole time. But when I got to the top section, it was doing all kinds of squirrely things just because that's what the thermal does. But yep. the way the deer use that property to me is very interesting, and I, I think there's loopholes I, I i guess i would say and how they use it and where i can kill one and they're going to let the guard down but it is a little tricky sometimes when as far as accessing it for me what i wanted to say is you asked me and i didn't i kind of skirted around what when you were saying about you're worried about pressuring those deer yeah what i learned is if you hunt all day um and i didn't finish this what you'll learn is those bedding areas are going to clear out while you're in that stand yet they're going to head for the fields or wherever they're going for the food source. Where we were, we had a pipeline also that went out the other side. Mm-hmm. So they'd either go to that pipeline, which is an open area, grass, clover. Um, the pipeline companies would plant. Sometimes they'd be, you know, asked the landowner what you want planted there, and they'd plant clovers or whatever. So if it was green they wanted that night, they could go that way. But what my point is they'd leave. And it gave you an opportunity to get out of there. Sometimes you got to get out before it's dark. You just yeah. got to sneak your way out of there. But yeah, hunt the stand for the situation it is. I mean, I think everybody's so used to hunting morning and evening, and that means they're either coming back to bed or they're going to food. Um, well, most most of your if if you believe 
in moon phases and things like that, which I do, mm -hmm. um, you, most of your lunar pulls on bigger on on larger animals, ungulates, are in the morning and in the evening. It coincides. Mm -hmm. um, so your best chances, a lot of times, are to shoot those most deer are shot during the morning or the evening. Sure, that's just the way it is. But as pressure builds up. That's when we learned to start hunting the, the midday. And I, I will say it was me, you know. I had to convince uh, my buddy, you know, when you start putting them on the ground, when they have pretty big headgear, the, you know, they're willing to try it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. And look, and, and it was just because, um, it was just because we were just trying to figure out, it all goes back to that nine-pointer. Yeah. Because that nine-pointer taught us something. Because we always were learning, you know. Um, and then, you know, back then you had to, you had to learn by trial and error, you know, and, you know, today it's, it's different. You know, they, there's a lot of information out there. The other thing is, is these box blinds. I, you know, my buddy just got one of these box blinds and he said, they, they don't smell you. Box blinds, honestly, I have a hard time saying it this way, but it's the best way to say it. It almost feels like you're cheating. Well... I mean, I have a friend of mine who's been hunting. He he he. They they work hard at it, just yeah. like you guys do. Yeah. Uh, they work hard at it, like we used to, and and um, they, he's very successful. But he even said to me the other day, he goes, "Hey, this is uh, well." Last year he said to me, "If, if I get to south wind, I should have him on the ground by six thirty. This was the first day. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And it was a five-year-old. That deer was five years old, and we know that buck because I think we both passed that deer when he was a seven. But um, it was a, it was you know, I'm a body size guy mm -hmm. because I was in the meat business all those years, and that's the biggest damn body buck I think I ever in Pennsylvania that I ever had my hands on. Mm. Uh, that was a, that's a big boy. Um, the rack wasn't, you know, didn't do him any justice. He was, you know, he was a Pope and young, but uh, he was in the high 120s. Which you is know. a great buck in it's Pennsylvania. A, it's a great buck in Pennsylvania. But like I said, you know, it's, it's, uh, in order to score these deer, you know, if you really want to, if you're really worried about inches, which is when you, when you buy a property and stuff and you manage deer, that, there has to be some kind of goal there to do right. all the sacrificing you're going to do. Right. You know, so you're trying to grow that deer now. Now you grew him, and the, because I got to say this, you you don't get them all that you grow. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I can tell you that you might get you might get the ones that resonate in my mind are the ones that got away them. <laughs> well, of course, but you might get fifty percent of them. Um, you might get more than that today with with the cameras and the. I'm going to say when we were there, the way how we did it, we didn't have that, so. Um, I would say if we got 50% of them, that was pretty good because mm. we had some, we had two that were absolute giants and they vanished and we don't know anybody who shot them. And I can tell you, well, you know how it is when you live in an area, the hunters kind of know each other, even if they don't know each other personally, they know of you if you have any success. And, you know, we called the neighbors. We said, did anybody see these two bucks? Nope. You know what happened to them? I'm not saying. I'm usually usually they get shot maybe a mile away if they decide to 
take a run one night after after some some new does, and uh, but yeah, never knew what happened to them. And they were absolute giants. I want to go back to <laughs> I want to circle the conversation back to the spotting and the data collection side of things. So you told me a lot about that over the over the years about spotting and collecting data, and you talked about following things such as when uh when you believed you were starting to see running activity you were talking about moon phase and stuff like tell me more about that like what what you would collect and what you gathered from that over the years well we would first find some target bucks right you know and then we have to keep you know we for the most part before they get ruddy you know before they their testosterone level really rises. They they don't really they're at the same place. You normally they're usually at the same area. They're on a good food source. Um, their midday food source is usually acorns, um, and uh, and anything green. But uh, we would start with that. Uh, and we we would the spotting. We learned pretty pretty quickly that that's the first sign is a bedded buck with a couple does or, you know, a, a quality buck. Um, that was sign number one. And you could spot, we would spot almost every night. And uh, we'd see these deer and we'd, we'd watch these bucks and stuff. And as soon as we would see one planted, we knew it started. That was the start. A lot of times it was, uh, it was following a full moon uh, that we would see that. On the on the on the descending moon, mm-hmm. and um, so of course we kept notes for that. And then I told you I have Murphy's book, one of the first books that ever came out that that uh, that taught you about moon phase and, yeah. and red moon and all that stuff. Because red moon's really not that red. It's not a red moon. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the that's the the term that was used that's, after uh, was it Hayes that, that bought it yeah, from him? Yeah. So, but I'm trying to think. Um, when you know, you know what we would do as far as moon phase goes. Um, like I said, that was its, it was a descending moon. Uh, then we we would see more activity in the quarter moon phases. Okay. So you when you, that's when that's when you would want to hunt. Closer to the the edges of the fields in your quarter moon phase, their 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 philosophy is that they're going to move sooner, earlier. They think it's darker than it is. Um, the deer do, and so that's when we would start setting up. You know, uh, we would see deer moving off of food sources more onto does, trailing does, things like that. And that's when we knew. Uh, that's when I knew that. I can start focusing uh, on those bedding areas and those transition areas between the bedding areas because they're going to get off of the food source. Not that they're not going to eat. They're going to eat on the run. And that's when you can, that's when I learned to intercept these deer. Well, talk about moon phase. I've heard a lot of people talk about, and this goes back to where the moon's at overhead and underfoot, mm-hmm. but when it when it gets to a certain way, they see deer going back to bed late in the morning and it's a better time to hunt in the morning yeah well well like the one you know 
we we always thought that full moon. I mean, it, it, it all depends what hunters you talk to. They swear by full moon. Right. A lot of them swear by full full moon. They really do. Um, but we didn't. You know, we we kind of followed the philosophy of Murphy when he wrote that book. You know, uh, we we put that to the test. We kept notes. And we noticed that we were seeing we were getting more opportunity once we were able to grow bigger bucks and we started managing these properties. Um, and these were when I'm talking bigger bucks, I'm not talking six years old and seven years old. I'm talking three year olds old. Sure. You got a three year old at that time that got, was huge. You got an eighteen inch buck, yeah, you got a hundred and twenty inch deer. Bring it a perspective back, when did you start owning land and, and managing land? Was that in the nineties yet? In the nineties. Okay. In the 90s, Which yeah. is the time when you were, it was before antler restrictions in Pennsylvania, so that, there was still a lot of deer that were getting killed that, that's at correct. a young age. That, that's correct. So, you know, we were, in fact, we were kind of ridiculed when we first started doing it because we really, we really, we, we, you really have to lay the law down. You know, we, you have to lay the law down and because we were sacrificing, we're the ones put the money up, we were sacrificing real hard and we knew we really didn't have enough ground. Mm-hmm. But we had the we had the ingredients that usually a four hundred acre tract doesn't have. We had the ingredients. We had everything you could want in that tract or behind the Christmas village. That's where it was. And uh, uh, the guy that owns it now, he still calls me. He'll still call me and say, you know, I'm not seeing bucks like you used to shoot and stuff. And I said, well, you guys stay out of there. You know, <laughs> it's so hard to do that just because you invest the time, you invest the, the money you want to be there. So same thing with the food plot. Like I, I tell people all the time, like people ask me questions all the time, food plot. Why? It's just because of what I do. Right. And, uh, you know, people say about, you know, what's the best improvement you can make? So it's probably a food plot, but it's also the worst improvement you can make because when you take the time to plant a food plot, bring your soil into check in order to grow a quality food plot and you put all this effort and you watch it grow and you baby this thing to get to hunting season what's the first thing you want to do you want to sit on it you want to hunt it yep and like we were talking about box blinds earlier i learned too slow but like we were uh, I, i was shooting myself in the foot sitting on food plots when i was chasing deer most of the time it was because it was hardwoods forest and there's an opening well what happens when the wind comes through it swirls in those openings and you deer would smell you and it because it would swirl yeah it was so hard to get a wind thermal that was consistent enough that you wouldn't get busted and then you talked about box blinds man that changed the whole world i mean as long as i have in my opinion as long as i have a dominant wind that doesn't screw up my axis that i can get into it and my wind is not blowing into a bedding area or into the food source when i leave vice versa um i almost don't care how much it swirls when i'm in the box blind just because it seems to contain it that much or dissipate it or whatever it is well according to the people i've talked to that have them yeah that's the case i mean they they just don't detect them and and uh it's look. It's a game changer. The cameras were a game changer. Ozonics, uh, you know, your ozone. Yeah, I haven't messed with that. It, well, I can. I'm going to tell you. I have. Okay. I'll show it to you right in that other room. Okay. Um, it works. It doesn't. Of course, I'm in a tree stand. I'm not in a enclosed area. It really right. works in an enclosed area. It works really well. Um, but when you're sitting in a tree and the wind swirling around stuff, however, I've had does that knew I was around but could not find me. In fact, wouldn't even, you know, I had a couple old does 
that knew I was around, that, that knew something wasn't right. They'd get glimpses of, the, of my scent, but then it would go away, you know, and then they were confused. You could see they were confused, and then they'd start, go back to start eating again. They weren't spooked enough to stop eating. And then, they, you know, they do the head snap and stuff like something's wrong. I've seen the same thing with the box blinds. Yeah. And, and so I've, but the bottom line is if I wanted to shoot them, they were dead. Right. You know, so, uh, so it was effective, you know, and it's effective enough to get them into, into shooting range with a bow and, and to take them out to harvest them. Mm. So, yeah, it works. I, I it, it really does. I mean, all this stuff, the biggest thing is... When I used to do seminars and stuff, people would say, well, how much money you get in all this stuff? Well, a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. If it's your pa- what you're passionate yeah, about. Yeah, it, it, it all depends what you like. You know, some guys like race cars. Some guys, you know, it, it's, it's, you spend the money, you know, these, like, like you said, you, you know more about box blinds than I do. I don't hunt out of them. Um, but they're, they're very effective. My buddy hunts out of one. Yeah. Uh, and has great success. Um, the Ozonics works. I can, I can back that up with with experience. Um, so, and the cameras are the game changer. They truly are. That's that's a game changer, especially your satellite ones, because, you know, like my buddy has like seventeen or twenty cameras out, and he has the satellite system, um, and he's managing ground, and he basically has. He hit this deer. This deer is on camera. When he's on his feet, more than he, more than he's not, you know. And this is a this is a four year old buck mm-hmm. he's on, so it's pretty impressive. Um, but I I I worry that it's going to get to the point where you can sit in your sofa at home and shoot one. Well, you, there's you know, a lot be- of worrying about that, and <laughs> I I think it's justified because let's face it, the 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 way human nature is in our country. Why wouldn't we want to go to easier? Because everything we do makes things more efficient, right? But it's going to get to a point where the efficiency is really questioning the art of hunting. Well, that's my point. My point is effective is great. Efficiency is, is not always great. Because efficient, efficiency puts people out of jobs. Efficiency puts with your AI coming and all that stuff. Uh, you know, effective, effective is more... Uh, more people friendly than than efficient um so you know i'm 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 probably think you know people say wow you're he's an old fuddy-duddy what the hell does he know well when you learn all these skills and you, you learn them you know from the time you're young and and you have success with it um and then they gain they change the game it's just like i will tell you i'll go i'll go back to this i was always a bow hunter I was born and raised in the meat business. In deer season, uh, when you're in a meat business, you're in gun season, you're skinning 500 deer. You know, anywhere from three to 500, we did because we couldn't do any more of that. We were inspected shop. Mm. Um, but it's a lot of deer. I've skinned over 10,000 deer in my life. Mm. You know, it's a lot of deer. Um, so I guess. I guess what I'm saying is I just would rather keep it. I don't want to see it get to the point where it's so you're almost embarrassing the deer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I was just listening to somebody talk about this and, and put it into perspective. Humans are 
in my opinion, the most incredible species on the face of the earth. Not that we do anything better than anything. We can figure out how to do something as good or mimic something that other species can do on a substantial level in a lot of cases. Not not every case in point, but uh, what what we can create and develop just is above and beyond other species. So when you use that against them in a sense of hunting, um, I think it it makes the fine line between hunting and killing. And look, I, I'm not, I'm just I'm just throwing this out there. I still use cell cameras. I like them. I still use a lot of the technology. But oh no, I'm not. The, I'm not saying there's nothing against. I'm not against anything. Sure. What I was gonna say. I'm sorry. What I was gonna say before I forget this. I was against the release. I'll tell you a that, release that, aid or for archery. A release aid for for archery because it took away the work of practice. Uh, it, you know, I was a finger shooter with a recurve when, when yep. we first started. We shot wood and wood and arrows. I mean, you're just showing my age here. But when they came out with microflight arrows, I mean, I thought I died and went to heaven. They actually had straight arrows. You'd buy, you'd buy a dozen wooden, wooden arrows, cedar arrows, and you were lucky to have five that were, you know, that you could shoot straight. Yeah. You know, it I was. I can't imagine. Oh, it was it was tough, uh, and your range was 20 yards. You know, 20 yards and in, you weren't shooting farther than that. I mean, you could if you had good straight arrows it's not that the bow wouldn't shoot them straight it was the arrow wasn't straight right um so yeah you know when the release aid came out it really helped but then i i thought i was against it at first and i thought well you know what's going to help guys shoot better that's going to work um so i was i was okay with that when i i was okay with everything as it went along you know we went from recurve to compound bows i think alan was one of the first compounds ever to come out uh, uh, Jennings, and the Jennings, reason I know that it. is because I just had Sherwood Shock, who was one of the the uh, the makers with Tom Jennings. I just had a podcast with him. This yeah. year. That was pretty cool. My buddy Mike, he had a Jennings, yeah. so he got one of the first ones. If they came out with something new, uh, Mike was on it. I will, I, <laughs> yeah. No, I will tell you, he he was. You know, he was like, hey, I, anything it gets it makes this easier because it's hard enough. Um, uh, Mike was a plumber. I got to tell you this quick. Mike was a plumber. And we would hunt the extended season and with the bow, which, you know, we thought was, when we first started, we thought it was impossible to try to beat them big does' noses after they've been hunted all year. Right. But we learned to be, we learned actually to be really successful at it. But Mike would actually, he was a plumber, he would take PVC pipe and he would put it in, he would put it so he would, he would breathe in and blow the air out the top because he put a pipe out of the tree with an elbow on it so he could actually blow his his, his breath, uh, his breath, up out of the tree, so they wouldn't see the the the, um, the steam coming out of them. You know, oh my word, because <laughs> that is an interesting. One. That's tell- a new one for me. I am telling you, that is absolutely true. I was watching him in a tree. I was laughing my butt off. But but you know what? He he did it. He hung in there, and um, I don't think he got one that night. But it was just funny, you know, of the extremes that hunters will go to. Yeah, you know, to, to try to get one close enough with a bow, and so anyway. Yeah, we're all guilty of it. Yeah. We've uh, we've been rolling a while. I One thing I wanted to ask you was when you w- w- take your experience, the properties you've managed and everything else you've done, if you were going to buy a piece of property right now and, and with all that mileage, what, what makes it a property worth buying for you? And... and and let let's just keep it relative. And I'm I'm not really thinking of this from a size perspective. I'm thinking more along the lines of the components of a property that Water, makes it good. 
you need water. Um, hopefully, you have some kind of mass trees before. You, you know, you plant oak trees, but, you know, you, you're going to get 30 years into it until you get some nuts. You know, it's, it's especially if you're going to plant them in, a, in that kind of, you know, in the woods. Yep. It's hard, you know. Uh, so you should have some mass trees, uh, something that you have opportunity early in the season. Um, but I would say water, some tillable ground that you can at least some some good ground, some level ground where you can actually put some food plots in and get some sun to it. Um, you know, the deer are rare, real simple animals. They, you know, and you got to have cover. And I like, I, I will say this, I like southern exposure. Okay. Um, in the wintertime, when it starts, to, when, it, when that thermometer drops, you know, down in the 30s, you need to have southern exposure because that's where the does are going to go and guess what's going to follow you know so you're going to focus on that what you'll notice is when you have land stuff and you're going to do some work sometimes when hunting season isn't close could be in the summer could be when it's hot you'll learn pretty quickly that the does are on the north side i mean the deer are on the north side uh, of your property of the, they're on the north side of the of the hill. All based on thermal regulation. Yeah, it's all based on that. And but in the in the but the best food's always on the south side. The better re regeneration of the food, the browse and everything else is on the south side. It's just easier for you to if you're going to put the work into it, you're going to get a you're going to get a result that you don't have to wait for two or three years. You know, right. you're going to get a more of a result. You put it in the north side, <laughs> you're going to looking at you're looking at three four times the time. Mm -hmm. But you don't have that much time. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you want to wait that long to, to, to have that area be successful where you can do the whole south side. If you have southern exposure, it's it's just it just makes it easier. Yeah. Things are definitely going to go quicker in that case. And you can grow more things. You know, you can just grow more things, including you can you can thicken it up pretty quick, too. Yeah. You know, if you want to create create some bedding areas. Now we years ago, we didn't have coyotes out here. Right. Now you have coyotes. Uh, you can go spotting around here, and you'll see four deer laying there and two coyotes laying right behind them. doesn't seem to bother them when they're healthy. i I, I got to tell you that. I, I, I find that odd, but they just don't bother them. Yeah, I, I, I've been around coyotes most of my life and watched them with cameras and in field and stuff like that. And some people swear about how much that that impacts their deer herd. I just haven't experienced that. I'm not. I'm not discrediting what they're saying. I just have not seen coyotes disrupt a deer's pattern. So maybe I'm not seeing it with enough coyote pressure. Uh, maybe there's a level where it gets too much. I mean, I let, let's let's talk about it like this from angle. So you know, I'm I'm doing this bear hunt right this year, and uh, I've hunted deer my whole life, and you'll have areas where bear come through. And, uh, I've seen it where I've already hunted on, on food plots where you'll, you'll see deer and they'll get nervous to clear the field and the bear comes through and he passes through. And then five minutes later, they're back out in the field. And it's like, they, they live with them. They coincide. It's predator prey relationship. I get it, but they, they live with it. But I found this place bear hunting where the concentration is at a point where I'm not seeing deer pictures and like the, like I'm finding trails that look like deer trails and you start looking at the sign it's like this is actually bear sign there's there's bear tracks so it's got to be there's got to be a point i guess a crossover where it does i've just never experienced it with coyotes yeah 
Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've been seeing more and more. Uh, we have pictures. My buddy has pictures of young ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I had I had sightings right down below my house here of two young ones and a, and a mother. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I, around here, in agriculture areas, your biggest predator is the combine. Oh, you got that right, man. That's a whole other topic of conversation. <laughs> people love ag when it comes to deer hunting, and I will tell people till I'm blue in the face, agriculture is the is not a good thing for for whitetails. No, in a sense, there's aspects of it are good, but there's a lot of it where in the in the big picture of it, especially when you talk about wildlife in general, it's not. No, no, it's it's they 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 kill a lot of a lot of fawns. It's just your your equipment is we go back to being efficient again. It's not effective anymore. It's efficient. Well, you talk about fe pheasants. Pheasants were such a big part of Pennsylvania hunting, mm -hmm. and they they left in a very short amount of time. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that happened. And I understand there's multiple factors, but in my opinion, with my knowledge that I have in farming, um, the creation of the disbine really put a hurting on nests. Because, I mean, they used to mow hay with a sickle bar. Yeah. And a sickle bar, a lot of time, would just go over the nest. Or, That's right. Or it wouldn't no, it would. disrupt the nest. Yeah. This bind, that kills everything in sight. I mean, I have farmers, and people don't know this, and I probably shouldn't share this, but this is the fact of the matter. Farmers every year kill fawns, poults, all everything. sorts of game yep. with a disbine. Yeah. Yep. Because a, a mixed alfalfa grass field, that's like prime habitat for covering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we and they've tried. Well, I mean, I in my when I was young, when I was you know twelve to even up to twenty five, even even older, um, you know, it was nothing. Especially when I was, I was going to say in my you know teen, in my I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I was born and raised in Stoutsburg, which is a little town between you know Wommelsdorf and Myerstown. But that area was so full of pheasants. I mean, in the evening, it would look like Christmas bulbs in the trees. Um, they'd, they'd come in and roost. And, I mean, there was just thousands of pheasants. And I could never believe that they would just go away. And I know they blame avian flu, and I'm not saying that didn't get rid of some of them, but uh, it's, it's, it's what we, we get back to the efficient or effective. Efficient farming practices uh, basically killed them all. Big time. And they're, they're, <laughs> they're, it has an impact on a lot of other aspects of wildlife, but, man, that's another podcast. One thing I thought of when we were talking, and I, I want you to, to close us with this, I want you to tell the story of how you acquired land in New York with your butchering skills. Because when you told me that story, <laughs> I thought that was the greatest greatest land accusation for deer hunting I've ever heard in my life. My my another friend of mine and I were, um, we had gone up to uh, uh, New York. We were hunting wildlife management areas, and we went up there to hang stands. We had talked to one of the rangers up there, and he said we could do that, so we did that. And uh, we were going up the following week. Um, to actually hunt them. So we went up there and we went, went to this little restaurant called uh, the farmer's wife or the farmer's daughter. I can't remember which what it was, but anyway, I think it's the farmer's daughter uh, near a town called Wayland. Okay. 
which was not far from Dansville. Okay. I don't know if you know where Dansville is on your way to Rochester. So, but this was in Steuben County. And uh, we ran into uh, this guy, and I said, is there any place, anybody, farmers, you think around here would let us hunt? Well, he goes, if you want to hunt, you want to hunt this guy's land. He named him and stuff, and but he said he has like six farms, but he won't let you hunt. I said, okay. Well, you know, I was there, so I was, I was going to try it, you know. So I went, and I'm used to going to talk to farmers and was in my being in the butcher business and stuff and you know i went to look at cattle all the time mm -hmm. so i <laughs> i pulled up to this guy's place and and a uh, guy comes out and says what do you want and and uh, i said uh we'd we'd like to hunt we'd like to you know help you out with your deer population you know and stuff i said we're bow hunters only we don't come back for gun hunting or anything like that we just bow hunt you know now nah, i said you know he said uh he said, well, I got to get going. He said, I got to I gotta get ready to, we're going to butcher tomorrow. And I said, uh, well, you're in luck. You know, I said, he says, what do you mean I'm in luck? I said, that's what I do for a living. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, what are you going to kill? He said, I'm going to kill two head of cattle and four pigs, you know. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll come and do them for you if you let us hunt. And... Uh, and this guy's this guy's uh, son, who was this guy, the, the the man that owned it was probably in his late seventies. Guy's son was probably in his fifties, and uh, and I opened up the back of my hatch and I pulled out my knife belt and I had everything with me with my steel and I and I said, "Can you do this?" And I showed him how to steal the knife and he goes, "You're not crapping me, are you?" He said. I said, I'll be here. You tell me when to, I said to come. If you let us hunt, I'll do your animals for you. And, uh, and that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so four hogs and two beef, in my mind, that would take a few days. And in all reality, <laughs> all reality, what is that to you? Well, it's like anybody else that does anything for a living. I, you know, they can, they can make it look a lot easier than you can. Well, sure. Well, so, you know, I mean, I I had, uh, I mean, I just told them how to help me, but to stay out of, you know, they stay out of my way, I'm going to show them that I can get this done and I'll have it done and we can go to lunch. And so we, I think I started at 6.30 that we have finally got it dropped and got it going. And uh 12.30, we were heading for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and their mouths probably dropped. Well, now you got to remember, I only had, I, I only had, you know, I, I had to skin them, and then we quartered them. But they quartered them. I skun them, split them, and then them guys quarter them. They're his two sons, and they hung them in this. They had this big walk-in cooler and a rail system. I mean, they had it set up. I mean, this, this guy had, a, you know, he had a nice setup there. But all I really had, I shouldn't all. I mean, it's a lot of work. But if it you is. have, it is a lot of work. But I scun them, gutted them, split them, you know, halved them, and and then they, they quartered them, and then I'd start. I started on. The, I dropped the pigs and, and, uh, and stuck them, and then it didn't take too long to do them <laughs> because I they didn't want them shaved. I said if if I can skin them, I can get these done quicker, you know, because usually we used to years years ago we used to scald them and shave right. them. Right. Uh, and a lot of the farmers, that's how they still did it. But now he said, no, we'll skin them. I said, all right. All right. That makes my <laughs> life easier. 
I love that story. The first time you told me that when you were hunting New York, because you were showing me some of the buck you killed in New York and telling me stories about hunting up there. And when you told me that story about getting land up there, I'm like, that has to be one of the greatest permission aqu- ac- you know, acquisitions I've ever heard of. Well, what was funny was, you know, um, my buddy, he was one of the, he was one of the, the, um, he was like in management. He well, he was maintenance manager. He was like the top guy in maintenance at Giorgio. Yeah. So I said to the guy, I said, "Now look, I'm good. We shoot. If we're lucky enough to harvest one of your bucks, you know, or two, I said I'll make you anything you want and send it back to you." And he just looked at me, and 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 he said, "Well, like what?" And I said, "Well, ring baloney." Well, I didn't know what ring baloney was up there. Mm. I said, you like horseradish? I said, I start making these new horseradish ring balonies are delicious. You know, he goes, well, I like horseradish, you know. I said, all right, I'll make you some of them. I'll make you some beef sticks, some jerkies, and and, and uh, some bag bologna. Well, they didn't know what bag bologna was either. Oh, uh, they're so, missing out. So I made them cloth bag, you know, three-inch, just a three-inch. Okay. Uh, but I made the whole thing, sticks, everything, and shipped it to him. And that guy was so tickled, he's... He calls me up and he goes, I just want to tell you something, buddy. You can come out here and hunt anytime you want. <laughs> and his wife got on the phone and she goes, I'm going to send you a picture. You got to see this. He's driving around with his tractor going down to the neighbors with this ring baloney hanging through the <laughs> steering wheel. Because <laughs> he wants them to try this horseradish ring baloney. It was just oh, funny. That is funny. Yeah. But uh, they actually, you know, this guy was so tickled. That he actually drove from New York the one weekend. He called me and told me he's coming. And he drove down to the butcher, my butcher shop there and walked walked in there and... and, uh, and wanted to see it himself. He, he huh? wanted to see it himself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had great... And then uh, I think we, we hunted there, uh, I think, three or four years yet, and they passed. Okay. And then the hunting ended. Okay. Yeah, then they they uh, they kept it with family. That was sure. it. which was I understood that. But yeah, and even the even the son said no. He even said he said you guys. He said I was worried my dad was going to give you the farm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that shoot. was funny. Anyway, anyway, well hey, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. Uh, okay. Thanks for doing this, Tim. I appreciate sure. you coming on. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll have another another couple hunting stories to tell after this. Well, season. look, I, I just think it's, it's great what you do. I'm, I mean, I really mean that. Appreciate I, it. Somebody's got to go do it. it, it it's got a billion dollar industry, and nobody talks about it. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> between farming and hunting, there are two things I enjoy, and I enjoy doing this. So, thanks for being a part of this one, and yep. uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Yep, thanks.